0: Did you know that it is Asian American Pacific Islanders Heritage Month? Macy's is highlighting some really cool AAPI-owned brands right now, like Carden, Kaja, Amelia George, and Hey Meath. Plus, you can help support college access and student success when you donate online or round up in-store to APIA scholars. APIA is the nation's leading nonprofit organization devoted To the academic, personal, and professional success of Asian American Native Hawaiian and Pacific Islander students. Shop Asian American and Pacific Islander owned brands at Macy's.com or in store. I love fast cars, but there aren't a ton of high performance TVs. They're certainly out here there. But when I when I get a chance to get behind the wheel of one, it's I love it. And I was blown away by the Kia EV6 GT. When you get behind the wheel of the Kia, it it is literally like being in a state-of-the-art rocket ship, but also comfortable. The thing goes from zero to 60 in 3.4 seconds. It is the premium driving experience. And of course, it's an EV. So the climate thanks you. Series XM provides access to over 165 channels in the vehicle. Music, sports, news, comedy, yacht rock. Let's go. Little, little steely Dan going in your Kia. Come on now. So check it out today. It is the all-electric Kia EV6 GT. I had a blast checking it out. Believe me, you should do it yourself via Kia.com slash EV6. To learn more, that is kia.com slash ev6 kia movement that inspires
1: we're happening hello
0: how are you
1: i'm good how are you
0: i'm so excited to talk to you i feel like we have so much in common that we've never ever unpacked
1: we haven't unpacked any of it rob so so i'm thrilled go for it ask whatever you want
0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to Literally With Me. Um, Well, listen, if you were living and breathing at the end of the 90s and into the 2000s, you were watching ER and loving it and eating it up. And if you were living and breathing um, in the last few years, you've been watching The Good Wife and loving and breathing and eating that up. And we have the titan of both today juliana margulies one of my favorite actors and one of the most accomplished women in television and in other areas too as you'll find out she's an author has her new book out right now sunshine girl an unexpected life good title jealous very jealous of that title should have thought of it for mine i didn't anyway stay tuned uh we're gonna get down to juliana margulies I like to start out <laughs> slow. It's early for me. I've barely had my coffee. Uh,
1: it's early for you. It's ten thirty in the morning. What t- time do you get up?
0: Well, see, you have to understand. I, like you, have been. When when I work, it's always like your call is four forty five pickup, right? right? And so normal
1: for us actors. Yes. Normal for
0: us actors. So then, when I'm not on doing a TV show or on camera, I'm like, I'm, I sleep like an eighteen year old, I, 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 or like a. I mean, you—you know, it's like the way like teenagers sleep, where they're like, you just come in and they're still in their bed. That's like the way I like to roll.
1: You are a lucky, lucky, lucky human being. That—that has never been my um, my luxury in life. I wish.
0: I mean, I do get up earlier now though because I'm I'm um, meditating in the morning, so I've been waking up in time to medicate. Medicate, yes. (laughs) I like I'm dying to medicate. I'm like Elvis. (laughs) I wake up and I pound pills. Um. (laughs) <laughs> no, no, but um, but which is I got to tell you that's no good because you wake up and you meditate and then you, what does that do? Put you back to sleep. It's a fucking disaster.
1: Well, well, sure, yeah. You should do the heads. We during the pandemic, my husband and my son and I were doing the Headspace. It's like a cartoon
0: mm-hmm. um,
1: at night, and just to sort of help all of us sleep better, and it really worked. It was great. Now
0: it, I've done Headspace on my phone. Is that same guy yeah. with the wonderful almost guy? Geico- this- the Geico yes, it, voice. He's a little bit of a Geico he, lizard.
1: Yeah, he talks like that. And, and just breathe. Uh, I love him. Yeah. Andrew is his name. Andrew. No, so yes, it is Andrew, but it's um, for kids. So it's it's like an eight-part series on Netflix that they did over the pandemic, which was remarkable because um, – I mean, I listen to them. I do it in my on on my earbuds all the time and and um do it myself. But to do it as a family together and all like close your eyes together and sort of watch these beautiful, they're gorgeous drawings. it's worth it's worth checking out.
0: That's so cool. I gotta, <laughs> well, I started that that like, you know, people have been telling me to meditate for thirty years. like that's the one thing you're missing, and I've never been able to to do it. and I started with that, loved it. And then um, got into TM, Transcendental Meditation.
1: Oh, yeah. I have a bunch of friends that are into that. How's that going?
0: I love it. And I'll tell you why, the difference. Because there's none of the, now be aware of your core and slowly (laughs) think about your feet. Take it down to your feet, then back up to your, think of the noise, the rain, the leaves. (laughs) <laughs> There's none of it. None of that. It's literally, you have your mantra they give you. And by the way, that's the most disappointing uh, anticlimactic moment maybe ever, where they give you the mantra. You're like, uh-huh. oh, this is going to be great. My mantra is going to be, you're an amazing actor. Or something. You know, you think it would be something great. It's like, that's,
1: the, that's the antithesis of meditation, Ralph.
0: <laughs> well, that's probably why I was disappointed.
1: I think so (laughs)
0: because I don't know what I'm doing. Uh, But my, but like they give you the mantra and it's it's gibberish. First of all, and it's meant to mean nothing. And at least I thought there'd be like an unveiling of a scroll, or like a like Indian. You were looking for a
1: production. I feel like you needed a production to get you interested.
0: There was not enough production value. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's
0: for, that's for sure. But anyway, all you got to do is think of, think of the mantra, and then you're good. That's it. That's all I got to do.
1: And TM works. That's good. You know, I, I I grew up with um, with a with a very hippie, sort of a, a hippie mother who meditated all the time, and I, you know, I was on ashrams when I was six years oh. old, while she was like off off doing her things, and I had to sort of find my own entertainment. So for me. I've always been a little bit resistant to meditation because what I saw as a child was all those people who meditate seemed to have their head in the clouds and didn't seem to realize I needed to be picked up from school on time. So,
0: did we have the same mother?
1: <laughs> probably. <laughs> so, I was very resistant to, I mean, I was a yogi and I did all that stuff, but that was about exercise that to me and breathing. It wasn't about sort of finding your inner mantra. So for a very long time, I resisted it. And then when I met my husband, um, he had just, the day after the day I met him, he had just come back from an 11 day silent retreat.
2: No. Um,
1: yeah. Up in Lenox, Massachusetts, by the way, which I've never done. Um, He said what was so fascinating to him was that um, it started out with 20 people and only nine survived the, the full 11 days. And he said what was incredible was it was mostly women who left. Wow. I what and that I said that's cuz honey we got to talk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we have so much to say. Um yeah, yeah. And then I watched how cuz he is not in our world at all. He's in a very different line of work. And I watched every night he would just quietly sit in the living room when no one was in there. Lights out, feet on the ground, sitting in a chair for 10 minutes. And then he'd come to bed, and he just looked like he had been on a vacation. Oh. So I, I realized that I needed to rethink my med- my ideas of of meditation. That I actually could be a functioning human being, and meditate, and and still be there to pick up my kid on time.
0: <laughs> it was it was also like the time that our parents were around. like everybody was like discovering fondue.
1: Yeah, it was the seventies, right? I mean, my yeah. parents met my parents met in the sixties. My eldest sister who's six years older than me, was born in 1960. So my wow. parents um, met it. – yeah, it, it was hippie time and, you know, about yourself. It was much more about yourself, whereas nowadays I think parenting especially is more about the kids, which I'm, I'm trying to find a happy balance with. But, but back then it was like the kids just came along for the ride. You didn't ask them if they wanted to come.
0: Your childhood was kind of fascinating. Your mother t- – t- tell me, pronounce, actually – the interpretive dance that your mother taught. what There's a name for it that's very interesting. <laughs> yes,
1: there is. It's called Eurythmy. Um, kind of like the Eurythmics, like Annie Lennox's The Eurythmics. Actually, oh. she apparently sent her children to Steiner schools and took, and and I, I think the story goes, I could be wrong, you may have to fact check me, but the Eurythmics come from the, the word Eurythmy, which is a form of movement. Um, it's through speech and music. Um, and my mother, who had been a ballerina, um, and then discovered Anthroposophy, which is a philosophy that Rudolf Steiner created, um, she then she then tra- was trained in eurythmy and taught at Steiner schools um, all through my childhood.
0: Tell me about Steiner schools. Mm. Is it like Montessori, where there's no grading and it's a lot of macrame? <laughs>
1: Um, so Some of it can be like that. It is different. Um, it's very much focused on young children and, and what they are ready for intellectually. So a lot of it I do agree with in terms of the early childhood education. I think um, I did not send my son to a Steiner school um, because I just... I feel like a lot of their methods are antiquated. In, in for an example, um, we were never allowed to watch television or um, any any electronic devices. Although there's there's great arguments for this because if you, if you go to Silicon Valley, all those guys, all those rich, rich, rich guys who made all their money on tech, send all their kids to Rudolf Steiner schools, because they know how addic- I've heard that. how addictive all of these things can be and how it does cut you off from human interaction. And so that I do understand, but I think there's a fine balance with it. And I think in terms of higher education and when you're prepping to go to college, you need computers and you need, I mean, if I always say to people in the Steiner community who ask me why I haven't sent my child to a Steiner school, I say, you know, if Rudolf Steiner was alive today, he was, he was a, He was a scientist, an architect, a, a, a writer, an anthropologist. He would have said, what are you doing? Get with the times. The computer age is fascinating. And I feel I just feel like the people who have sort of carried on his mantra haven't really dug deep enough to realize that actually the convenience of the technological world is at our fingertips. And if it's used wisely and taught wisely, it can benefit every student So um, so I have a I have a a love hate relationship with Steiner schools, although I personally do feel like I got an incredible education, but I was very self motivated as a student, whereas my sister, who would prefer, you know, to smoke pot and Mm -hmm. and hang out with her punk friends.
0: She sounds like a genius. That's that's I love that. You know,
1: instead of her getting kicked out of school, they were like, well, Rachel's special. You know, she has all the and yes, she is. She was a musician and she was incredibly smart and funny and whatever. But she was getting D's and they were okay with that. You know, they didn't Mm -hmm. kick her in the ass. So in the high school I went to did do grades because for them, I went to a high school in New Hampshire, which was only a high school. It's a boarding school. I didn't board there. My mother was a teacher. So I I was a day student. But um, they really want students to come. So it was important for them that we all got into a good college. So they actually did have grades and um, it was a much stricter, harder academic schedule.
0: I'm telling you, you and I are the are the we've had the same lives. I'm telling you, really exact same thing with my kids. Tell me. They went to a bust your ass grade academic boot camp prep (laughs) school. They were day students. And because it was my sort of coming out of, you know, the Montessori, you know, kumbaya stuff, which I guess is great for somebody. But and a lot of people, it's nothing against it. Yeah. But like I wanted them to go to a good school. And if they smoked pot, that was an issue. And if they got bad grades. That was an issue. And, you know, yeah. all that, all that stuff. And, and, uh, and
1: how'd they turn out?
0: Stanford, Duke, lawyer.
1: There you go. Um, Bravo, and the other, and the other one
0: just sold his first show to Netflix at 25.
1: Oh, my God. So, You're a
2: proud
0: papa. I'm a very proud papa. I'm happy to give their credits like that. I, it doesn't make me a bad person, does it?
1: Not at all. You, I mean, everyone wants to be proud of their children. But there is that great line in A Death of a Salesman.
0: Oh, my favorite play.
1: On, I mean, truly one of the best plays ever written, written in three days. Um, no. By the great no, really? Arthur Miller. Yeah, he wrote it in three days. at the No age of 20, way. At the age of 23.
0: How did I not know this? Oh, my God.
1: Yeah. But there's that incredible line when Willie Loman is talking to his friend who he's always borrowing money from. He's talking to his son, waiting for the friend to come out of the office. And the son is just bantering back and forth. And then he says, listen, I have to go to D.C. And then the father comes out and Willie says, I'm really sorry. i got to borrow more money. And he goes, you know, um, he goes, how about my kid, huh? Off, Off to go and argue in the Supreme Court. And Willie says, What? He told me he was going to D.C. He didn't tell me he was arguing in the Supreme Court. And his friend says he doesn't need to. He's doing it.
0: Mm. He doesn't
1: need to tell you.
0: Doesn't he's doing to. it. He's doing it.
1: I always remember that line and think, wow, if that that is not a sign to braggarts to shut the fuck shut up. Shut the fuck up. <laughs> I know. It, it really is a remarkable line. And at 23 that Arthur Miller knew to write that just blows my mind. Um, but yeah, he doesn't need to. He's doing it.
0: The most devastating moment I've ever had in a theater was watching Brian Dennehy. In I'd never seen it live. Never seen it to my un- unending shame. Saw it very late in. Yeah, I saw it fairly recently later in my life. And there's that moment where the 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 they're all at the party on the road and he's realized that Willie Loman's having sex with the woman and the woman and with the stockings. Up, yeah. Yeah, and the and woman gets up to go to the bathroom. And or no, Willie gets up to go to the bathroom and the group turns to the to his son and says, um, who is so who exactly is that guy? Who, so is, is that your father? He goes, No, he's just some guy.
1: Yeah. Devastating.
0: Great play. If you guys out there listening haven't read that one or seen it, check it out. Um, all right. So we gotta talk about ER. Everybody I know has come through the, the ER world, my brother Chad Lowe.
1: Yeah, did, did, who directed me in a movie once. Which wait, What was it? Beautiful Ohio. Wait.
0: Oh, my God, that's right. Beautiful <laughs> Ohio. Yeah, I
1: love Chad. I love him so much. He's He did a, such a great job. I mean, I just loved being on. I mean, it was an independent, tiny, tiny, little, nothing movie, really. But listen, it was William Hurt and Rita Wilson and me. And um, oh, God, I'm going to forget all the people in it.
0: Michelle Trachtenberg.
1: Michelle Trachtenberg. Oh, my God. Right. And anyway, tons of great people. And we and we shot it in Brooklyn on zero budget. And um, Chad directed it.
0: He's been directing my show, Lone Star and some other stuff. He's I just talked to him. He's the best. He sends his love. But
1: please send my love. So that's his he's found his jam, right? His jam is. Oh, yeah. 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 I could tell when he was directing that. I was like this. You were meant for this.
0: He loves it, and he's really, yeah. really good. You know, yeah. I mean, I think all all s- smart actors who have experience and want to direct end up being at minimum functional directors, and usually really good ones, just because they understand story and acting so much.
1: Yeah, yeah. I always, I always loved it when actors on my shows decided to direct. Like when Anthony Edwards, I remember that was the first time one of the actors on the show on ER um, got a directing slot, and I was like, oh, my God, you are so awesome as a director. I loved it when he directed. And same with Josh Charles on Good Wife. He directed. And I loved it because they know how to – they understand acting, you know?
0: Yeah. It's, and by the way, both those guys are great. They're yeah. also just great dudes.
1: Yeah. I didn't get to um, – Eric LaSalle, who's now become quite the prolific director, um, he started directing once I'd already left the show. And one of these days, I'm going to get him to direct me because I think he's really super talented.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask you about, about Eric, but I mean, that was af- after your time there.
1: Uh, yeah. Um, not my desire at all. Do you have any desire to direct?
0: Uh, I, don't, not, I don't mean to sound like a snob, but not television. It's not that. But um, I've, I've, I did a – remember when Showtime was doing all those really in, like big deal short films? And they were always nominated for Oscars like in the early aughts. I did one of those yeah. and then I did – and then I um, directed a movie, a little movie last year a remake of the bad seed. Oh, and, wow. And that was really, really fun.
1: So you do want to direct.
0: I love it. I tell you what, I love it. If I could sort of do that and do, do nothing but that I would, but I don't, I don't really feel like I need to want to do an episode of, of television because all the big choices are already sort of been made. Right. It's like yeah. the cast is already there. Every The wardrobe is already there. The sets are already it's there. It's a machine.
1: It's a it's machine. A machine. Yeah.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. it's it's not that it's not directing, it's a, just a different style of directing.
1: Yeah, it's always so interesting. They kept saying, "Don't you want to direct a Good Wife?" You know, and all of all of our executive producers, Robert King, you know, juliana You can, and I was like, "Guys, I'm I'm barely I'm in every scene. Like I'm." I, I barely make thing. it to the bathroom in time. How am I going right. to do that? And I have a kid, yeah. and I have a husband. Like for me, it was just too much. I I it, I, I didn't have, and television. I feel unless you're directing the pilot, yes, um, where you get to set the tone, and yep. um, and that's what made ER. You know, Rod Holcomb, the way he directed the pilot of that show using the Steadicam as the seventh character. Um, and 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 um, Charles McDougall, how he directed The Good Wife, like those guys, they create a template and then people follow that template.
0: Um, a lot of people, a lot of people give talk about the West Wing walk and talk. But what they realize is that is just Rod Holcomb. I mean, Rod yeah, Holcomb, that was ER. a lot of people, <laughs> a lot of people get credit that shouldn't when it comes to certain things. And the West Wing walk and talk is Rod Holcomb. It's not anybody yeah, else. Sure.
1: Did he direct some West Wings?
0: He never directed to West Wing.
1: Oh, that's interesting. And you were we were on the same lot together, weren't we? When West Wing. What year did West Wing start?
0: Uh, in 1999.
1: Ninety nine. So we right. So we had already been there for four years or five years. Yeah.
0: We we used your set when President Bartlett got shot and everybody got shot and we were all whatever that was. We were like all so excited to be in the West Wing set with that mosaic floor in the operating room. There's some weird floor.
1: Yeah, so so they actually modeled that entire set off of Cook County General in Chicago, where I had gone to follow nurses around before I started the show. Um, I I always ended up in the hallway with my head between my legs, breathing into a paper bag because it was just what what you can never get on television is the smell. Um, The smell in those Mm -hmm. trauma rooms just suffocated me to the point where I would be, I I would have to vomit. I couldn't bear it. I do not have the stomach for it, but those Cook County hospital rooms, which have been around for kind of seventies feel, you know, the Mm -hmm. floors and the tiles and the color and the trauma rooms. So that, that was all pretty authentic stuff. Yeah.
0: And we'll be right back after this. If you're thinking about doing some home remodeling, check out window world. Go to windowworld.com and check out their Windows Inspiration Guide. The guide is a dream book of page after page of beautiful windows. It's not just about how good they look. These beauties earned the good housekeeping seal and Energy Star certification. Go to windowworld.com to schedule your free consultation. Tell them you heard about it here on Literally with Me, Roblo. Lowe, Window World, America's Exterior Remodeler. So I came home to a little gift in my bathroom the other day from our friends at Harry's. To get what you want, you have to challenge the status quo and blaze your own trail. You know who challenged the status quo? Harry's. Blaze your own trail with Harry's. Get started with a $13 trial set for just $3 at harrys.com slash rob. That's harrys.com slash rob for a $3 trial set. Shopping for humans is hard. Shopping for your dog is easy. Thanks to Bark. Every month, we deliver toys and treats just for your pup. They deserve to be spoiled every month. At Bark, we send your dog a whole collection of toys and treats made just for them every single month. Whether it's our fun plush toys or our ultra-tough toys from Super Chewer, we give your dog exactly what they want. And for a limited time, we will double your first box for free. To get your free upgrade, go to BarkBox.com slash Rob. BarkBox is so convenient and delivers straight to your door and more importantly, right to your dog. I can't wait to try out BarkBox. My dogs need their toys, particularly the chewable toys. Sign up now at BarkBox.com slash Rob for an exclusive offer. This ad is now over. Let's get back to petting our dogs. There's so many apocryphal stories about ER and and like the notion that the network was like, well, we're not sure because all the patients come in, but like, what happens to them afterwards? Right, like right. they're ne- like when you. Th- it seems that it's such a cultural thing, ER. But you forget there'd never been a show where you didn't go to the ER and then to the bed, and then the doctor would come in, and then you would see what it, nothing. It was just the them getting into the hospital, and that was it.
1: Yeah, George George Clooney always used to say the best. The, the best thing about our show is you see a guy come in, in, in on a gurney with an arrow literally through his head, and he just wipes through and you never hear about him again. That's life in an ER. You know? <laughs> they come in, they leave, and you never see them in between. Um, and that, yeah, it was a really fast-paced, um, what a show. It was a, a a real luxury to be part of that show.
0: Well, and, it, and it took a Steven Spielberg to stand up to the network note where they go, I'm sorry, we saw a guy with an arrow come through uh, the frame with they said, what happens to him? I think we need to know more about him.
1: Yeah, I, I'm always a little confused on who um, who who is fully responsible for getting the show on the air. I do know that NBC did not want to pick it up as a pilot. Um, and it was Warner Brothers, Les Moonves, actually, who was the head of Warner Brother Television at the time. Yep. And he's the one who said... Warner Brothers is going to pay for all the next um, test audiences and we we promise you this show's a hit and NBC kept saying no and they said give us your your johnny cart or Jay Leno audience I think it was Jay Leno was on Um, give us them give us your audience and and sure enough the audiences ended up loving it and and they put it on the air but it was a fight it was a fight to get it on the air.
0: That's amazing to me. You'd think, again, with the auspices of Spielberg. But I bet you it was the stuff we've we've just been sort of laughing, but it's serious. It, it was groundbreaking in the storytelling. And they were yeah. just probably petrified, and they probably tested it. And a couple of people went, what happened to the guy with the arrow in his head? And they were like, yep, knew it. I you told know, you so. This is where I find everything so
1: incredibly interesting in terms of timing. Because mm-hmm. – so Steven Spielberg was moving offices – And one of his, uh, a guy who worked at Amblin at the time was emptying all the shelves and found this Michael Crichton script that he had written in 1972 called ER as a film, as a two-hour film. And, like, they were throwing things away, and he started looking at it. He was like, well, it's Michael Crichton. And then he said, well, this isn't a good movie, but it would be an amazing TV show. That's how ER came about. And to think that that script could have just been uh, thrown away, you know, but it just so happened that that person found it from, you know, from 20 years before. And then Michael Crichton looked at it again and said, wait, you know what, you're right. Let me let me rework a few things. Let's make it into a two hour pilot instead. I mean, the confluence of events leading up to one of the biggest shows in the history of television. I, I, I can't not marvel at that, you know. It, and then what it did to all of our careers, it's just one of those things where it's, it's mind-boggling to me that it all actually happened.
0: And yeah, thats I'd forgotten. How did I forget about Michael Crichton? Michael
1: Crichton! For Michael God Crichton sucks. wrote the pilot, yeah.
0: The tallest, smartest man who ever lived.
1: Six foot seven. I always used to... <laughs> I loved him so much. I really loved him. He was a gentle giant. Just the kindest man.
0: When you saw Michael Crichton with your own eyes, you were just like... You could not believe how tall he was.
1: No, I know, and you I always felt embarrassed um to stare, you know, even if I was talking to him because you're you're looking so high up. Um, and he always sort of like was like a giraffe that you know, he would sort of come <laughs> bend down a little bit for you, but he was just the sweetest and his wife is lovely. We stay in touch. Um anyway. It was a it was a great group of people.
0: Were you there for the live ER episode?
1: Oh yeah. I think that was our I wanna say our Third or fourth season. I was there for six seasons. Yeah, Tommy Schlamy directed that. And um, and I was the only cast member who was against it. I'll take the heat for that. George and Anthony thought it would be fantastic. And everyone was excited about it. And we were doing two, we had to do two live feeds. So we had to do New York and then LA. So we, we actually yeah. shot we actually did it twice. And I just, you know, I I came from theater and I didn't like that they were tearing down that fourth wall um because what I loved about ER was that people sort of disappeared into these characters' lives and I was so afraid that with with it being live and us looking directly into the camera and talking that people would somehow feel distanced in a weird way. But mm. anyway, um I never saw them because I was doing I was going to say
0: I was going to say now with <laughs> with time has gone by D- were you on the right side of history or not?
1: I don't know. I I, I don't know. I, I remember reading one review um saying something like uh, oh god and and Juliana Margulis spilled her coffee but it was live so she couldn't clean it up and do it again and I thought god you're idiots that was the char- I my character spilled her coffee. You know like I didn't I didn't like being opened up to that kind of ridiculous criticism because it, it, it didn't help our story. And I was like, no, that, that was a conscious choice that Hathaway spills her coffee there because she's nervous about the cameras being. So I don't know. I don't know if it worked. You'd have to ask someone else. I think that ultimately people felt it was very successful and it brought back, you know, George did it later with, um, um, oh God, and Brian Dennehy was in that. Um,
0: yeah, what was it? I remember Fail safe. it was some- Fail safe. Failsafe. Failsafe.
1: George directed Failsafe Live. Or yeah, I think he directed it.
0: I feel like those things are always—you want to like them, you should like them, <laughs> you see them, and you don't like them. That's sort of how I come down in the live those live shows. I don't know why. It's just the way they're shot. It's it's just I, they feel flat. It's hard. Well, they feel like General Hospital.
1: Yes, it, it's it is. It's very um, flat and it's very bright and it's very video. It's a video. That's um, it. I think. I think my understanding of of like coming from where George was coming from wanting to do live TV was it you know we all owe our careers you me and everyone else who's had a illustrious a, a television career to where TV came from and I always right. feel like George's way of repaying that was to pay homage mm-hmm. to these um to the greats to the to the great television shows that were shot live because that is a real combination between theater and television, you know, and, and there is, um, so many television actors or, and film actors nowadays never have to do theater right to get to, 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 to become an actor, they can go straight. Whereas that never, you always had to do theater and especially to a live television audience, that's theater and you don't get to have a second take. You have to power through the, the whatever the mistake you made or the line you don't remember and, and and rely on your technique and your talent rather than a second take. So I always think it was his way of paying homage to the people who came before. And so that way I do respect it and understand it. I, but I'm not sure I like to watch it. I think you're right. I'm not, I'm not yeah, sure. It-
0: <laughs> Even the musicals that NBC is, are doing, that's like you want to watch, you want to love those live musicals, and you, and some of them. I, I remember, I, I actually liked the sound of music. I thought was great, but the sound of music is so great, it's hard to ruin that.
1: I dated the the produ- the executive producer of the Sound of Music. I dated his son once. Uh, his uh, sorry, he, it was his great grandfather who's executive produced it, and I dated him. And I said, "What did your did your grandfather ever make another movie?" He Goes never had to. It was never the had Sound to. of Music.
0: Doesn't have to. He's doing it. <laughs>
1: yeah, it's fine.
0: <laughs> when you decided to leave ER, here, I, here's what I heard. Um, you Between me leaving West Wing and you leaving ER, we're in a very exclusive club, you and I.
1: What year did you leave West Wing? Fourth year. W- was yours a, a year-to-year contract or a six-year no.
0: contract? No, I had signed, I had signed a, a full deal and asked to be let out of it. Oh. And, and you— and you were just didn't resign, correct? Correct. Yeah.
1: I resigned once. Oh. Um, I had signed a, see, ER screwed it up for everyone. So we all had to sign five year contracts. And then um, in our third year, they asked us to sign a sixth year. And I signed that. And then in our sixth year, they asked us to sign eight another 2 years and i said uh, i mean i write about this in the book um yeah be- because it 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 is something that seems to have defined me in the business and um i never really wanted to talk about it and um i finally realized that in order for me to um help other people too not just not just explain my part of it but um I gave a commencement speech at my alma mater in 2010 um, at Sarah Lawrence College. And I was thinking of how I could help these students go out into the world. You know, yeah. like, what what could I say to them that their parents haven't already said or that they didn't already know or, you know, and I thought my experience, I, I can I can talk about my experience. So that was 2010 was the first time I left ER in 2000. So 10 years later was really the first time I publicly spoke about it. Because everyone, um, there was terrible backlash. And I don't know if you got the same um, response, but I there was a lot of backlash to my leaving. Who does she think she is? You know, that's $27 million. I think it's important to understand that this was not an easy decision. This wasn't flippant. This wasn't me laughing $27 million in the face and going, ha ha ha, I can make that any day of the week. This was a harrowing, difficult decision for me. And I had already, because I knew my six years contract was gonna be up, I had already signed on for a year of work right after ER. So without knowing about the 27 million yet, I had already signed on to do a play at Lincoln Center with Jason Robards and then to go and play Morgaine Mm -hmm. Le Fay in the Mists of Avalon, one of my favorite books of all time. I was going to get to play the lead and live in Prague and ride horses and do I I was a horseback rider as a kid. So to be offered something like that was just a dream come true. And then the twenty seven million dollars. Shut up! So I'd already said yes to John Robin Bates to do his play. I'd already said yes to Uli Odell to do his miniseries for TNT, and I thought I was doing great. I was, you know, wow! I've, I've, I was 32 years old at the time. Um, I had paid off my mortgage. And I got to go back to New York, where I'm from, and do theater, and then go off to Europe and ride horses and swing swords (laughs) with a great director. Um, I I had seen Last Exit to Brooklyn, which Uli had directed, and I was just slayed by that film. And I thought, this is what you get to do when you've done six years on such an incredible show. You know, I wasn't married, didn't have kids, free girl. And I was looking forward to it. And then that money got thrown at me. I, I, everyone I talked to, I asked everyone for their advice. I'm a big believer in talking things out and asking people what they think, because I think it's very hard to sort of, to, to, to see yourself in your, from your own perspective. You need to see yourself from everyone's perspective. So everyone that I respected, I asked and everyone said, don't be an idiot. <laughs> Take the money. Um, it's just two years of your life.
0: Oh, so everybody, so everybody you asked said that.
1: Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, Even God even and and what was interesting about everyone's argument to me was you'll never have to work again. Women never make that kind of money in this business, and you'll never have to worry about about money,
2: yeah.
1: right you'll you'll be set for life, basically is what everyone was saying. and then i i um I, I still wasn't comfortable. I, I I was not comfortable. I had planned my whole year, and I was really looking forward to moving home. Um, LA was great for me for a while, but I'm a, I'm a girl who needs four seasons. I grew up in, in Europe and New York and New Hampshire. Like I, I need to feel like I'm moving forward with a spring, summer, fall and winter. You know, my wheels turn that way. Um, and my parents, um, were in the Berkshires and I, although divorced, but close by to each other, I wanted to come home. So I called my dad and I said, what would you do? and he said when is enough enough honey did you ever dream that you would have made the amount of money you've already made that you'd have money in the bank that you'd have your mortgage paid off at the age of 32 did you ever dream that and by the way at that point i was also paying his mortgage and my mother's mortgage so <laughs> i did <laughs> i did have a pretty big nut but but i i i i'm not i'm very good with money and i don't i don't i'm not a huge spender so um And he said to me, I know a lot of unhappy rich people. What you have to ask yourself is if you say yes to two years, two more years, and you're waiting to get rich, and in that waiting period, you get hit by a bus and you die, and you're looking at your body lying on that pavement as your soul is heading somewhere else, and you look down, what are you going to say to yourself? Were you being your truest self? Were you living your truest life, your happiest life? Or were you waiting, biding time to get rich?
0: There's no time like the present. You don't want that body saying, I wanted Ulu Grossbard, but I got <laughs> Anthony
1: Edwards. And then you're out. No, but you know, it it was a profound moment for me, topped off with the fact that then after he said that, I went to the Bodie Booktree store and bought the first book I, uh, that called out to me, I knew nothing about it. It was called Awakening the Buddha Within. And, uh, and I, this is a true story. I couldn't make it up. I brought it home. I shut my bedroom door, sat on my chair, closed my eyes, opened the book, and put my finger down on the page I opened at. And it said, I realized my mission in life was to learn more, not earn more.
0: Come on, you have to be kidding! That's amazing.
1: No, that was exactly what it said, and I, I, it was, it was one of the. I'm, I'm not a religious person, but it was one of those. I remember looking up, being like, "Okay, is that what divine intervention feels like?
2: <laughs> that feels like
1: that was divine."
0: Yeah, that's that's the moment where the where the assistant doesn't throw away the the ER script.
1: Exactly. Exactly. So between that and what my dad said, I thought, you know what, go with your heart and and go be happy and feel fulfilled, and the rest will follow. And it did.
0: It's a very hard decision to make. I mean, I, I when I
1: why did you leave? I'm sorry, I'm not up on any pop. Oh,
0: culture. please don't don't worry. Were
1: you not having a good time on that show?
0: You know, it was. It's it's in a, in, in the same. I did the same. I wrote wrote about it in, in my book too, because people always ask me, and and for me, it's like asking a couple why they divorced. It's like a very complicated, two sides to every story, hard to put into just the first conversation type of thing. It really took chapters in a book to do it, and even then doesn't do it justice. But the long and short of it was, I was not enjoying the experience of making the show. I was loving the show, uh. and, um, and then, you know, the show was shifting what it was, it was. I was having less and less and less to do, and I felt like these are the best years of my life. And I've got young kids at home that I'm, I'm you know, right. I'm, I'm, and also our, our schedule was notoriously awful. I mean, we, on on Fridays, we would start on a Friday and we would end at six o'clock Saturday morning, every Friday. Oh,
1: yeah. Well, that was my every Friday on The Good Wife.
0: Yeah. I was like.
1: <laughs> we called them Fratterdays. Fratterdays. Yeah. That's just the nature of one hour dramas. Yeah because yeah. they don't need you you know to come in on on Saturday they don't need a turnaround so they yeah i mean that was my life for you know well i guess if you added it all up 12 uh, 13 years
0: <laughs> well, and you know people go people say it's like ER and was they are very similar it's like that's the part of a lifetime for you it was the part of a lifetime for me it still is the thing if People say, I've never seen anything of yours. What should, what should I watch? I'd be like, watch The West Wing. I mean, I, I knew it was great, but, you know, there's, there's more stuff in life. It's like you said, there's more stuff in life. By the way, John Robin Bates, who you left ER to go work with. Yeah. This is a great story. So Aaron Sorkin might be one of the best. He's, he's, look, he's one of the best writers who ever lived. Yeah. But he was writing The West Wing and Sports Night. You can ask I me, mean, listen.
1: I've heard a lot of Sports Night stories.
0: <laughs> yes, and they're all true. So the, the network was like, you have to, Aaron, you have to let somebody else take the reins and write so you can get some rest so you can get, we can get back on schedule. And he goes, he wouldn't do it, wouldn't do it, wouldn't do it. And he finally goes, okay, here's a pre-approved list of people who can write a West Wing episode. And it was literally Academy Award winning movie directors.
1: Of course.
0: And and then, and and, and John Robin Bates was on oh, the list.
2: Robbie. So Robbie
0: Bates comes in. The, and, and they were like we can uh, you know we're going to do whatever and, uh, and he wrote this Robbie Bates was like uh, I have this idea of um, going back to Sam Seaborn that's my characters uh, uh, he, he has to leave during the campaign and it's a big deal because he's got to go back to Ohio because his mother has Alzheimer's and we're going to examine that and by the time the script was done it was uh, they went back to C.J. Craig Allison Janney's mother's house who had Alzheimer's.
1: Oh, it was no longer your character's house?
0: It was no longer. Yeah. So that was, that was the kind of stuff that started happening for me. And the other thing is, is for me, like you, when you were talking about your, um, commencement speech, I wanted to show my kids, like if you're not being valued in, in something that looks great to the outside world, you know, you gotta advocate for yourself.
1: Yeah. So you, so you left cause you felt underused.
0: Yeah, yeah, and look, and so much of it is like to, to tell the real story of it would unnecessarily hurt people or make people look bad in a way that I'm not really interested in, in doing. But yes, and it's like, I'll put it to you this way. I work with Callista Flockhart on Brothers and Sisters. She had a notoriously, notoriously complicated relationship with her tenure as Allie McBeal. Mm-hmm. I told her three West Wing stories about me. She goes, I will never complain about being Ally McBeal <laughs> ever again.
1: <laughs> oh, I'm sorry you had that experience. But look, here's the
0: other thing. It's all good. Like, and the other thing is, like, nobody wants to know that the Beatles hated each other. Nobody wants to know that. They just want to hear, hey, Jude, and love it. Right. And it's it's the same with the West Wing. It's like, it's all good. It's, the, it's fucking good. It's all good. Nobody cares. I don't care anymore. It's all good.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think you get also to a certain... Um, I mean, I didn't leave ER because I didn't love the character and didn't love the people. I left ER also... I mean... Uh, there, a big part of it was I also felt like my storyline kind of ended when George left. Our characters yeah. were so intertwined, and and they gave me the most beautiful ending. Yeah, which they did. Was, you know, And we shot that in total secret, by the way. The cast didn't even know. The hair, makeup. I did my own makeup. I stole my wardrobe out of my trailer, <laughs> and they flew us up um, to Seattle. And we shot that just um, with our... Our cameraman doing the lighting and the camera, and John Wells directing, and we we shot that. And the the poor people who owned the house that we used their backyard had to sign a, uh, a their, their life away. Yeah, but um, and then it got put into a vault at NBC, <laughs> and no one no one knew. Anthony Edwards, no none of the cast knew until it aired that we had done it.
0: Oh, that's so great! That we talk about um delivering for the fans
1: i know and that's what i felt like i felt and both of us both george and i were like that's you know they never gave us a wedding on that show and and I'm, and that was our way of saying here w- we technically got married <laughs> you can all yeah. rest um but i but you know i didn't leave that show with any um bad feelings i they always wrote so beautifully for me for my character but uh, someone was explaining it from a fan's point of view which which you and I don't think of, I mean, now I kind of do, but Mm -hmm. fans get really like they're heartbroken when their favorite character leaves a show.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: And it there's, and, and that's a testament to the show and the acting, right? Because when, when people are so invested in your character, you know, and that I started feeling bad, you know, for people (laughs) who were heartbroken that Hathaway left, but, but I'll tell you what, what it did do. Um, there I was doing an, I mean, I didn't leave to become some big movie star. I left to do a play at Lincoln center for $235 a week. You know, I didn't have any grand illusion that I was (laughs) so that I was some Sandra Bullock, you know, that wasn't. And that was why I was, I think why the, the press mostly was so cruel. They're like, who does she think she is kind of thing? Because, um, and this, and my dad really helped me through this too. My dad was a really smart, wise guy. Um. When there was a whole bunch of backlash happening, and 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 those women on the View were were just—I happened to be at the gym one day, and that was on, and they just went at me with their knives sharpened. Um, even Barbara Walters holding up the cover of you know New York Newsday. Who does she think she is? She's no spring chicken. I'll never forget those words. <laughs> um that was nice. And I was just I was devastated mostly because I, I was embarrassed a that anyone was talk, talking about me. I'm if you notice never in the ta- like I am just not that person. I'm I'm not a tabloid kind of girl. Like yeah. I never danced naked on tables or you know slept with the chauffeur. Like it just doesn't <laughs> like that's not my style.
0: Right. So that we know of. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, sure. I
1: keep it yeah. under wraps. Um but <laughs> and the idea of talking about money because I grew up, you didn't talk about money. That was gauche. You, you never ask someone how much they make. Like you, So the fact that they were talking not only about um, the money and about my decision, but then they were saying, who does she think she is? I was devastated. So I called my father crying. And I said, oh, my God, Dad, they're making fun of me. And he said, honey, it actually has nothing to do with you. Your decision makes them think, what would they do if they had been in your shoes? And all of them would have taken the money. And you said, I'm fine without it. Thank you. And it makes them angry. It has nothing to do with you.
0: 100%. Your dad is a smart dude.
1: Yeah, really smart guy. And I, I was like, oh, my God. Now, of course, you know, I had to build a thicker skin and get over it, and I did eventually. But that's the truth. It's, and it's what I do. It's what we all do, right? When we're in any situation, you look at someone's choice and you go, would I have made that choice now? I, I'm not someone, um, I think everyone is in charge of themselves and I, I would never judge someone for a choice unless they murdered someone, you know, that that's not my business. I don't know what their life is like. I don't know who they are, or how they conduct themselves, but, um, and this is on a much bigger scale, but you know, when you see philanthropic people just giving their money away, are you saying yay for you or are you saying don't be an idiot and throw all your money away you know where 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 do you where are you in that equation so it's always about where are you in the equation which is where criticism comes in
0: i took the criticism for being an egomaniac that that you know i wanted to be the star and i was jealous of martin sheen and you you just got to suck it up and let that all go and let's take a quick break You know the only thing I ever let interrupt my podcast? My dog. Take a minute now, please. Pet your dog while you learn about Bark, the company dedicated to making dogs happy. Every month, BarkBox designs and delivers a whole new collection of toys and treats just for your best bud. Every toy is tailored to your pup's size and play style. From squeaky plush toys from BarkBox, to ultra-tough, durable ones from Super Chewer. Every treat is made with yummy, healthy, all-natural ingredients like pumpkin and sweet potato. Each box is inspired by a new theme and comes with fun surprises for you and your dog. For a limited time, they'll double your first box of goodies for free. I love making my dogs happy. Love it. It's my favorite thing in the world. And my dogs are obsessed with their chewable toys. BarkBox offers treats to keep my dogs healthy and amazing new toys that keep my dogs entertained. To get your free upgrade, go to BarkBox.com Rob. Looking for a sparkling clean bathroom without so much hassle? Wet and Forget Weekly Shower Cleaner is here to revolutionize your cleaning future. Just spray today, rinse tomorrow, and voila! Enjoy a sparkling clean shower and tub without any scrubbing. It's the secret to a hassle-free clean bathroom that many are discovering. With over 33,000 five-star reviews, Wet and Forget Weekly Shower Cleaner has proven its effectiveness on shower glass, fixtures, tiles, and more, ensuring everything shines with minimal effort. This product has gained a loyal following thanks to its once-a-week application that makes it a standout in the cleaning aisle. Join the ranks of satisfied users who enjoy more me time and less clean time with wet and forget weekly shower cleaner available at Amazon, Lowe's, Menards, Home Depot, and Ace Hardware. It's the perfect choice for anyone wanting to simplify their cleaning routine. Don't miss out on a chance to transform your bathroom cleaning with just one application a week. Pick up a bottle of Wet & Forget Weekly Shower Cleaner today and join the thousands who've already made the switch to Effortless Clean. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you've been listening to Literally Long Enough, you'll know that I am a big believer in getting the help you need. Therapy has been a big, big, big part of my life and something I think we should be all doing as needed, just like checking the oil on your car. I've spoken about this and we all carry around different stressors, big and small, We keep them bottled in and it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe place to get the things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever is weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and get matched with a licensed therapist. And switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest. With BetterHelp, visit betterhelp.com slash Rob Lowe today. To get 10% off your first month, that's H E L P com slash Rob Lowe. The other part of it is, is like when you're working on a show and you're at like, you're in the boiler room of the ship, like when you're doing what we do, you know where every rivet is, you know... Wherever how the propellers are going, and that thing was starting to come apart. And listen, Aaron Sorkin left um, three months after I did.
1: Oh, he did and
0: it, for the same reasons,
1: right?
0: You know, so it's like, and here's one thing I don't want to be on the the West Wing with somebody other than Aaron Sorkin writing it, because then right. it just and it became it became ER in the White House, which is fine, but that's not what what it was, <laughs> right?
1: I also think you know it's really. I, Look, I did 156 episodes of The Good Wife, right?
0: which is a great show.
1: Was a phenomenal show, but I used to sit with the kings and and they mm-hmm. would they would say to me, "Look, the next episode you're about to get, it's a filler." And I go, "It's a what?" They're like, <laughs> "We're exhausted. We have this whole arc, but we have to save it for, um, you know." whenever the ratings blitzes, yeah, I forget what it's whatever, called. Sweeps, yeah. thank you. Yeah, sweeps. Yeah. They're like, so these are going to be a couple filler episodes. And I'd look at them, I'd be like, yeah, but it's my face up there. Like, I'm saying <laughs> Like, wait, what? <laughs> and and I finally grew to understand twen- you cannot make 22 home runs every no. time. And that's why I think what's happening with television is so exciting. And, and just having finished, I just did... Um, at the next season of the morning show you know they do 10 episodes a year which for me wasn't even we we by the time we got to christmas break we already had 15 in the can and still had to go 9 more
0: you know like I know oh yeah
1: I, so you can't make 22 great Things It's why I was always rallying for the writers on our show, because they would get nominated for Emmys up against people who'd only wrote, written six episodes of a show. Oh, don't
0: get me start. Don't get me started on this subject. Don't even get me started on this <laughs> subject. This is my because regu- regular folks don't understand that when I yeah. oh, go back to the West Wing, when the West Wing is up against the Sopranos. Well, of course, the Sopranos are doing maybe 12 episodes a year. We're doing 22. Yeah, And when their writer gets tired which he did, they, they decided to us. go to it, to go to Italy and, and drink espresso for a year <laughs> to get inspiration. The network or, there uh, says, yeah, why don't you go do that? You know what they say to Aaron Sorkin? Where's your 22 a year?
1: Right. And that's it, it's impossible. Honestly, I mean, the joke about the Sopranos, I did the last season of the Sopranos, just uh, six episodes of it. But um, I used to joke with them because I did it. I probably in 2006, I think I did it. And I would say it took you people 10 years to make six seasons of your (laughs) show. (laughs) 10 years. Who gets that kind of luxury, you know? Of course you're going to win all the awards. You have the time. But that's the thing about network TV is, you know, writers write the pilot. It might take them two years to write a pilot. Then it gets picked up. And they've got to crank these out every week. It's it's not fair to them. And and, I mean, Robert and Michelle got three weeks off a year. You know, we we would go on hiatus at the end of maybe middle of May and back to work July right after July 4th. They had three weeks in June. That's it. Yep. You know, you don't you you can't refresh yourself. You can't you can't. Get any kind of rest if you're always cranking these things out. And listen, I mean, Mariska Hargitay is a good friend of mine. And I, I say to her, I'm like, I mean, in the beginning, she used to do, they used to do 26 of those a year.
0: Her story is amazing. Yeah. Um, Just a little factoid. My wife gave Mariska one of her first job jobs as a waitress at the Santa Pietro's pizza parlor.
1: Oh, my God. That's how long I,
0: that my, my I, wife has known Mariska when they were kiddies.
1: Oh, my God. Um, I, can't, but, I can't imagine. Was she any good as a waitress?
0: Probably not.
1: Yeah. I love her so much. She just and she's makes the me best.
0: laugh. But, yeah. like, look, she's been doing 19 seasons.
1: No, my friend. She's about to start her 22nd, I think.
0: I'm, whoa, 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 whoa. What?
1: Yeah, or, or possibly her 23rd. But she has it down now. Like, she, she she, works her ass off. And she's directing now, which is really commendable. But she only works three days a week, I think. Right. Like she, and thank God. I mean, the woman has three children. <laughs> like, I, I I saw her last, just a, a few days ago, and I was like, I don't know. I I have one kid, and I barely made it through seven years you know, of that show. And she was like, well, you know, I have help. And I was like, no, it's, no, that's hard.
0: Well, it's like we talked about doing the theater. It, to me, it's like when you get past like a hundred shows in the theater, you get into this vibe where it's hard to have a new experience, and so you have to have an even even deeper technique and an even different level of concentration. And I've, I like I, we're going into our third season on on Lone Star, and I feel like we're just starting. It means I, I don't feel burnt. I don't feel anything. I just
1: and how many of those. Do you shoot a year start intro?
0: it's network, so it's eighteen. But listen, in the old days, it would have been twenty-four. Right. We're like thrilled at eighteen. We're like, yippee! It's nothing. And you shoot that in L.A. Yeah, and you're. But you did um, Good Wife in New York, correct?
1: We did. I mean, I, I. They wanted to do it in L.A. because Robert and Michelle um, lived in L.A. Our, our writers and I said, I love this pilot so much, but I, my baby was thirteen months old at the time. Huh. I, I, uh, I was, you know basically a newlywed. Um, and I, and my husband was working in the city and I said, "I, I can't, I can't do it. And they, they, we shot the pilot in Vancouver and, um, the deal in my contract was if it got picked up, they would all move to New York. And funnily enough, Michelle and Robert, whose daughter now is, I think she graduated from college, but, um, their daughter fell so in love with New York that they ended up buying an apartment here and they, they moved to New York. I mean, I think they still keep their place there, but they're New Yorkers now. So yeah, we shot in Greenpoint, Brooklyn.
0: Wow.
1: Um, and I used to live down in Soho, so it would take me 12 minutes to get to work. But the problem is all the exterior stuff, like the courthouses in our first year of shooting that show, because we didn't know if we'd have a second season, we had to rent out courthouses. So we, could, we went in on a Friday night at 5 p.m., Oh no! Out in Jamaica Queens, and oh, no. we would get oh yeah, because we had to wait until the court was closed, ah. and then we would shoot all night. And I'd, I would stumble in to my house at around seven in the morning, praying my baby was asleep, oh. because if he was awake and I'd been away from him for the entire day and night, how could I not? I mean, I I just was, and I there's a chapter in my book about it because I I wanted to write about the underbelly because <laughs> it all seems so glamorous and it is there's listen we are lucky little shits right yeah, it, for
2: sure
1: we are so lucky but I wanted especially when you're the lead when you're number one on a call sheet and and I'm so passionate about my work and I so want it to be truthful I don't want to phone anything in you know so I really took that part very seriously and I just sort of wanted to show all the shit that goes wrong behind the scenes that might look glossed over when you're watching the final product. But in the end, and the whole reason this book came out was because my very last scene with Christine Baranski, she slaps my face, say hug, hug everyone goodbye, go home. And I woke up with 102 fever and the chicken pox at three in the morning. <laughs> and that's how my book started because I was bedridden for three weeks. And never in my life have I ever stayed in bed. I, I I just don't get sick. You know, I was a workhorse. I'm a workhorse. Mm-hmm. I show up on time. I know my lines. I, you know, I if, if you're number one on a call sheet, it is up to you to show everyone else if you can do it, they can do it. Yep. You, you be polite. You learn your lines. Because if you don't know your lines, you're wasting the crew's time. They have families they want to get home to. You know, we all have a life outside of this work be professional. And so I I just was spinning plates for seven years, literally, because I had a baby and a husband. And then, of course, my last and final day, I break out in the chicken pox, which was quite, um, I never had them as a child.
0: It's brutal for an adult to get chicken pox. It's really, really dangerous and tough.
1: Oh, my God. It was so uncomfortable. You can't, well, the first week is uncomfortable. Then you just look like a crazy person. So I couldn't, do anything but lie there and think oh. and after spending seven years constantly running through a revolving door uh, with a to-do list mm-hmm. it was cathartic and and ended up being an incredible gift you know just like that if that's not your body saying slow down stop and that's how the book started because I just started writing um, once I felt better and could actually see <laughs> um, I just started writing chapters realizing that I'd been examining my character's life so intensely for 7 years I realized I hadn't really examined my own and I needed to understand why that character gripped me so so strongly and and why sometimes she made me so sad that I couldn't find my way through the sadness mm. and so I started to unravel it all and realize like oh my god there's the I knew this when I was a baby. I just had nowhere to place it.
0: The book is, is Sunshine Girl, and Unexpected Life.
1: Right. So Sunshine Girl is the name my mother used to call me. That was her nickname for me. And, and the subtitle, An Unexpected Life, is, is I never in a million years thought I'd end up here. And, yeah. and when I say here, I'm not talking about fame or fortune. I'm talking about meeting my husband, having a child— Um, Feeling like I belong, truly belong, because I had such an incredibly chaotic, um, insecure, unstable childhood that even though I only had love in my life from both my parents, truly, I was abandoned often, you know, to fend for myself. And yeah, and I talk about that too, like, and is that such a bad thing? I don't know. You know, like when I realized my kid couldn't tie his own shoes at seven— because I always felt guilty for working so hard and tying them for him. I thought, oh, no one tied my shoes at seven. Right. So you know how to tie your own shoes. Get out of his way. Let him struggle. Yeah. Right. So, so it's this yin yang that we're always searching for. And that's really what the book is
0: about. Well, listen, the other thing, because, again, it's so insane. It feels like we had the same childhood. The I just know for me, the abandonment part of it, that's why I have the imagination I have. Because I didn't right. have anything else, right? So you know, man, my you know, I turn that machine on and it goes, and but it goes because it's it's the three hours left alone in the back seat, wondering where the hell mom went,
1: right? And and children are so resilient, you know. It does worry me oftentimes. You know, my we resisted. My kid didn't. He just turned thirteen, and for his thirteenth birthday, he got a phone. He never had a phone before um, because I would say to him, "Use your imagination." You know, create your own world because you're going to need it. Um, and if you always have a device in front of you, you're you're not going to know who you are. You need to find out who you are first. Um, but I, I know that's met with a lot of eye rolls, but I, I take it very seriously because I, you know, at, at our house, um, we sit down to dinner and you walk in the door and you put your phone in the in the basket by the doorway. There's a perfect little table there for that. I, I you know, when... My my brother in law, who I I love madly, um, my my husband's brother, um, he's in private equities, and he used to come up to our house upstate, and you know in the morning at breakfast he had the two computers and his phone, and I'd come down, and I was like, oh no 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 no, you want to do that? Go up to your room. This kid doesn't see that at the breakfast table. I do not want him seeing that. And he was like, oh, man, but I just want I know, and I said I'm sorry. But if he's monkey see monkey do, you know, we need to show our children like that interaction with human beings is really important. (laughs) Obviously, yours have done just fine.
0: (laughs) Well, they were they were really lucky. They were the last generation that that did not have um, social media for their most formative years.
1: Right. So it came in like high school. Right. For them.
0: Yeah, exactly. Came in high school. Thank God. I don't know how you do. I don't know. I mean, my brother Chad has three daughters all under the age of 12. And I just don't know. uh, I think it's
1: harder. I mean, we're really, really strict about it. Um, And also the school he goes to is is quite strict about stuff like that. But we don't have a girl. I I, I, my girlfriends who have girls because girls are a lot harsher on social media than boys are. I mean, his, he's a geeky boy who plays Magic the Gathering. You know, like he's not, that's what his friends talk about, that in anime. You know, that yep, <laughs> at totally. 13. Yeah, yeah totally. That, but, but girls, I mean, my kid could give a shit what clothes he's wearing. You know, he's like, I'll say, honey, your shorts are on backwards. He goes, who cares?
0: <laughs> and you
1: know, <laughs> he doesn't care. Yeah. He's a boy. He's a guy. He doesn't give a shit. Whereas girls are just so judgmental. And, and I say that loving women and, girls, but I think um, for my girlfriends who see their their daughters not invited to the party because of an Instagram post, uh, it's just heartbreaking, heartbreaking. At least when you and I were kids, right? We're basically the same age. I, I yeah. just turned 55, but, yeah. you know, at least um, I, I, I never knew about it because there was, wasn't even a cell phone, you know? No,
0: we didn't know. Ignorance was bliss.
1: It absolutely was bliss. And And by the way, the
0: the playground was always a jungle. And now the playground is extrapolated into the entire culture.
1: Right. Right. But you just have to teach them what value means, what it means to sit down and have a conversation, what it means. You you have to take more responsibility as a parent now to show them human interaction.
0: Yeah, you, you you model it. It really is true. Is they you model what it is? But the other part I, I realize is that no matter how hard we try, we're gonna we definitely screw up somehow. I mean, we're gonna screw our kids up. We are. Of course, we're just gonna in and, some way. Of
1: course. You know, my mom, who was always about herself, um, you know, whatever she wanted, uh, was chastised by her. I have two older sisters. Was chastised by her daughters for always putting herself first, and then she tells me that all her friends who quit everything to be stay-at-home moms are chastised by their adult children for not having a life.
0: Yep, that's it's right. It's like you're
1: damned if you do it, you're damned if you don't, you know?
0: 100%. <laughs> yeah.
1: I mean, so, it just
0: is what it is. Um Well, this is great. Thank you. I, I, I loved our talk.
1: Thank you. I love your podcast. I've been listening, and I'm thrilled to be on it. And it's great to see you, Rob.
0: I know. You too. Um Hopefully we can... We got to cross paths. I can't believe you work with Chad Lowe before Rob Lowe. What the hell? I
1: know. How funny is that? Please send him my love. You know, what? I'll email him. He's such a sweetheart. Such a sweetheart. But send him my love, please.
0: I, I will. And let's, let's cross paths on a set one of these days. Please. I hope so.
1: That would be fun.
0: How lovely is she? Great mind. Great talent. Clearly a great mother. Great author. She kind of has the whole package. And... uh Sometimes I forget I'm doing a podcast and I'm like, oh, my God, what did I say? Because it gets so swept up in talking to people. That was one of those times. So if I sounded anything not good, forgive me, because all I was doing was talking to the amazing Juliana Margulies. Anyway, so before we wrap up for the week, uh, it is time. Yes, it is. I know you're ready. I know I am. It is time for the lowdown line you've reached literally in our lowdown line, where you can get the lowdown on all things about me, Rob Lowe, 323-570-4551. So have at it. Here's the beep.
2: Hi, this is Lori calling from Cambridge, Massachusetts. I just finished listening to your audiobook uh, Stories That I Only Tell My Friends, and I've actually really enjoyed it i um, not so happy uh, listening to the F-bomb, but that's just a stylistic thing. I think you're a great writer. And I'm interested in knowing what is your process or has been your process for writing both books, stories, plays, scripts, that kind of thing. Um, are you a person who gets up early every day, you write a certain amount and take some breaks, or how do you stay motivated to do your writing? And meanwhile, keep it up always enjoyed your uh, and your uh, work and you seem like a sparkly happy person and great great um to hear about a family that is so well connected as yours has been and continues to be thanks so much bye
0: oh thank you so much i like that thank you um well you know um it's funny that i ask my heroes my writer friends the same thing you did i'm fascinated with people's process of writing whether it's songs or books or and everyone has something that works for them i mean stephen king famously has a you know super duper regimen and writes i think i think he writes 8 pages a day no matter what no matter what which is mind blowing i am not so disciplined probably why i'm not as good a writer as stephen king um but i think of it as this way the muse Inspiration is always in the drawer of your desk. And sometimes the drawer is open. Sometimes it's open for a long time. And sometimes it's closed and won't open. But you're never going to know what's going to happen unless you're at the desk. So um, I'm under no illusion about writer's block. Uh, I'm only going to get past it if I'm sitting with my pad and paper. It isn't going to happen taking a walk or clearing my head or doing yoga, Um, the muse will happen when you have your instrument in your hand. Um, I write anywhere, anytime. Um, I love being on planes because I'm uninterrupted. I've written a ton on planes, trains, and cars. Um, I've written on my lunch breaks, on sets. Um, I kind of find it really interesting to see how many different places I can write in. Um, I do not have a dedicated writing space, although I, I do have a favorite area in my house. And uh, I'm also a big fan of deadlines. I, I love having a deadline. A lot of people don't. I've never missed a deadline because I've always been a pleasure to have in class. And uh, grades weren't so good, but I was always a pleasure to have in class. So if you give me a deadline, I'm going to deliver for you. So again, thank you. And thank you for reading, uh, for reading the books. And um, the next books, no F-bombs. Um, I promise. Thanks. More fun to come next week. Um, don't forget to tell some friends about our podcast, and uh, don't forget to subscribe. See you next time. You have been listening to Literally with Rob Lowe, produced and engineered by Devin Tory Bryant and me, Rob Schulte. Our coordinating producer is Lisa Burm. The show is executive produced by Rob Lowe for Low Profile, Jeff Ross, Adam Sachs, and Joanna Solitaroff at Team Coco, and Colin Anderson at Stitcher. Our talent bookers are Gina Batista, Paula Davis, and Britt Kahn, and music is by Devin Tori Bryant. This has been a Team Coco production in association with Stitcher.